Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. We view ourselves as not just a museum of modern and contemporary art, but a place that should be the best at presenting the work of Latin America and the Caribbean while we look toward the U.S. Latino experience and the African diaspora. That's Franklin Sermons, director of the Perez Art Museum, Miami, or PAM, since 2015. A native New Yorker, he studied art history and English at Wesleyan University, going on to teach at Maryland Institute College of Art and Princeton University. He began his curatorial career at the Dia Art Foundation, where he organized annual exhibitions across the U.S. and internationally. Before he joined PAM, Franklin served as curator of modern and contemporary art at the Menil Collection in Houston and department head and curator of contemporary art at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, LACMA. His initiatives at PAM include ensuring that PAM's art program reflects the community in Miami and securing donations. In his first six months at PAM, he obtained the largest donation of works in the museum's short history, over 100 pieces of art donated by design district developer Craig Robbins. He's written for numerous publications, including Art in America, Essence Magazine, and The New York Times, and was the 2007 David C. Driscoll Prize winner. Franklin, welcome to Artscoping. Hey, Max, thank you. I'm so glad you could join the podcast. And for full disclosure for our listeners, you're on the board of the Souls Grown Deep Foundation and Community Partnership, which keeps us in regular contact. But let me start by asking how you and your family are doing as South Florida is going through a pretty challenging chapter in the pandemic. We're doing well, but, um, you know, we're definitely fortunate and uh, get to take advantage of things like the weather, which has been incredibly helpful throughout this time. But I am looking forward to getting to the other side of this and things seem to be progressing. So we're well, we're challenged, but well. And PAM is open, and its architecture allows for a lot of outdoor as well as indoor experiences. What are your visitors saying about the timed ticket experience? It's been fantastic, and people really appreciate the whole package, right? So it's the time ticketing, it's the symbols on the floor, it is the fact that we have created a route through the museum that leads to a singular path. There is no going backwards. So we've taken some of that away. And in the process, you know, we have masks, of course, are mandatory. And in the process, we've made people feel overall safe, which I think is the most important part of it. That's the feedback that I'm getting. And like you mentioned, um, we do have a sculpture garden outside. We are adjacent to a 30-acre park. So we have been able to also provide, I think, programming and activity in the outdoors, which has been great. It's good the visitors feel comfortable. I have to say the museum profession doesn't feel so comfortable right now. <laughs> there, yeah. there are quite a few reckonings and controversies playing out in the museum field. I want to start by asking your thoughts about an issue that's been on people's minds, how you balance the occasionally problematic sources of wealth of museum donors with the museum's need for support. I have not really had to deal with those sorts of issues, you know, not in any insignificant way. But the way that we deal with that is really just by a rigorous process of not only prospecting, but of onboarding. And um, it seems to be working. 
to me, the issue is less how someone made their money than how the museum deploys it. And as you know, at Souls Grown Deep, we've made a commitment to impact investing. And so we take money from pretty much anybody and we convert it to being used in a way that's socially progressive and responsible. Isn't that yeah. really the way forward for museums too? Yeah, there is reinvestment and that can be socially impactful, that can be really positive and lead to some great outcomes. We do have to take into account sources of our funding. We do not invest in projects here at PIM the way that we have been able to at Souls Grown Deep. Let me turn to another issue in museums today, which has to do with virtue signaling, if I can call it that. After George Floyd's murder, there was an outpouring of institutions making an effort to suggest that they were taking this to heart, that they were reviewing how they operate, almost every U.S. art museum of scale. So all these months later, do you sense any real systemic changes in the profession? Yeah, I think overall, there continues to be a kind of reckoning. And and I think for, for great reasons, uh, museums are being held accountable in ways that they might not have in the past. I mean, you know, part of the reason I think why a lot of us have gone into museums is because we want to have a positive impact on the world, uh, socially, um, most importantly. We have been really good about saying that in the past. Um, when we talk about issues of DEAI, these aren't necessarily issues that are new to museums. But we are being held to account now in ways that we haven't in the past. So I do believe that that alone um, will lead to a lot of positive change uh, throughout the field um, and make us better stewards, not only of collections, but better stewards of museums and the idea of what a museum can be in a community. There's a lot of positive um, growth that has come out of the last year. And I believe and hope that we will continue to capitalize on that kind of change. One of the topics that keeps coming up is how a museum's programming and acquisitions and exhibitions reflect the diversity of this country and around the world. How much do you think that staffing and boards should mirror demographics of a local community? Oh, I wholeheartedly believe that they should mirror the demographics of the local situation, both at the staff and board level. That's been a guiding light for us in many ways. I just, I believe wholeheartedly in that. It's not the case, as you know, with a lot of museums that were mm -hmm. populated early on in different ways by collectors mm -hmm. and the next generation were corporate trustees. And now I think there is a shift to thinking about community members and yeah. civic board members and the like. Yeah, well, you know, I, I can only speak from, I can speak from here, as you know, I mean, being in, in Miami uh, at a museum that began its history in the early 1980s in a very difficult and challenging moment in the history of this city and the history of this county, I would say, um, not just from headlines in, in, in magazines that would call the place Paradise Lost, but from the very real day-to-day uh, -day fabric of immigration, of refugees, of drug violence, of many different kinds of people coming together 
in the same place and and not having a lot of opportunity to understand each other fully. Um, we grew out of that space and that time. And so we've been tried to be pretty attuned to it, I think, throughout our history. We only began collecting in the mid-1990s at a time when issues of globalism and its relationship to museums were of paramount concern and issues of multiculturalism, issues of some sort of pluridimensionality were paramount. And so that's that's our origins. And we've tried to double down on that, I, I like to say. We view ourselves as not just a museum of modern and contemporary art, but a place that should be the best at presenting the work of Latin America and the Caribbean while we look toward the U.S. Latino experience and the African diaspora. That's kind of the ground upon which I think we stand, and so I can say somewhat uniquely, right, being in this mm-hmm. place that is probably a little bit like uh, a harbinger of what other American cities might look like in the future. Our city hall accommodates for three languages, uh, English, Spanish, and Creole. So, you know, there is a little bit of a character here that demands that a public institution at least be hyper aware of its possibilities and potential for representing its community. And that awareness plays out in different ways. So I'm wondering about your collection building and your programming to the extent it reflects social imperatives as opposed to following what curators might want to present as great art. Well, we see it as one and the same, right? The, the great art is, is addressing these, these issues. That's what we've tried to, to think about and tried to build in far, as far as the collection and as far as the programs that we do. For instance, right now we have an exhibition on view called Allied with Power, which is a show of uh, selections that are coming into the museum permanent collection uh, that were acquired by George Perez. And then we also have an exhibition up called My Body, My Rules, which talks about women and gender to some degree and in a show that exclusively features women. Those just you know, they didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, those are exhibitions that have been in planning for quite some time. They're not reactions to the moment so much as they are part of uh, who we uh, consider ourselves to be. And you're opening an exhibition on May 20th of the Chilean-born artist Felipe Mujica, which is oh, yeah. entails new works that are made collaboratively with artisans from the Mikosuki tribe in South Florida. Could you share some of the thinking behind the project and our indigenous traditions breaking into the mainstream art world elsewhere in the U.S., in your view? Yeah, um, that's an exciting exhibition. It's being organized by our curator, Jennifer Inacio. I'm super excited to see this show. We could do more of this type of, of programming in which an artist has taken the time to collaborate and communicate with a community here, very specific to here, as you mentioned, the Miccosukee tribe, and to do something together. Uh, I don't think that happens enough. Um, So I'm really excited about this exhibition. I think it is a chance for our visitors and our audiences, both here in Miami and, and 
digitally around the world uh, to learn and, and, and know a little bit more about the indigenous people of this region. It is happening more. I mean, when we talk about reckoning with systemic racism, we know that we're talking about deep, deep, deep histories, um, histories not only of slavery, histories of colonialism, histories of imperialism that have not been been dealt with uh, fully in the past and and need to, to continue to be examined. And so this is, this is a chance to do a little bit of that. I would have to say that if we're talking specifically about the examination of indigeneity within American museums, I say that we are all pretty slow um, and pretty far off in terms of any uh, really substantial reckoning. I mean, I would also, I would, in that conversation, you have to think about Canada and the great work that that a lot of institutions are doing there. I think it's been a much more visible and much more vocal conversation there as, as it has been, of course, in Australia and New Zealand in thinking about Aboriginal communities there. So we're, we're, we're trying to do a little something to, to, to add on to the conversation. Yeah, I was at the Brooklyn Museum a couple of days ago and noticed that the Lenape people are now very prominently mentioned in signage as, as in the Portland Museum in Oregon. Brian Frieza was talking about the same kind of acknowledgement and respect paid. And I guess we all have to see where it takes us. Yeah. Speaking of, of representation, last month you held the 8th Annual Art and Soul Celebration, which is a virtual event in support mm-hmm. of your fund for African-American art. And that began, of course, years before other museums showed an intention to diversify their collections. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts today, Franklin, about deaccessioning works instead of raising new funds to diversify permanent collections? I believe that the same effort that went into, you know, acquiring works in the past is part of acquiring works in the present. And I tend to believe that our collections are symbols of who we are, the positives and negatives within that, and that we have a lot to learn from our collections. And I think that there is a certain amount of dynamism or, or, or editing that is a part of that process. But I do proceed with caution when it comes to changing the character of one's collection in order to meet the current mode or, or, or desired outcome. So I do kind of adhere more to, I think, as you mentioned, that we can raise funds to acquire new works that will tell the character of the collection as we see it without necessarily having to get rid of a significant part of our past. That's easy for me to say, right? I'm at a museum that has only been collecting for just over 25 years. So perhaps I'm, you know, I'm speaking from that position, but that is how I see it. Is it a topic at the board table? Does it come up with trustees who, who are curious because there's been in the news a lot and a lot of institutions have been? Oh, absolutely. In the past, the conversation comes up that where, how do we account for ever, ever increasing costs in storage and in insurance? You know, it mm-hmm. comes up in that context. 
Like yeah. maybe we don't need this piece if we have so many expenses that are tied to all these other works that we love. So perhaps we should deaccession this work. And and we've we've had very, I think, wholesome kind of conversations, but we have not moved on anything in that regard. One of the things of late I think we've all noticed is that institutions are grappling with the balance between building collections and providing experiences, whether they're shows or installations or happenings in some cases. And as you've mentioned, Pam shifted from being entirely exhibitions focused Mm -hmm. to being a collecting institution in 1994. Is it changing? Is collection building starting to be seen differently in light both of escalating costs and also the need to be more nimble and the declining interest of audiences, frankly, in permanent displays? I think the the first thing is that (laughs) because of, of climate change, we all need to be aware of, of carbon footprints. And, and certainly, so sometimes I like to think that we doubled our collection in the last five years, and that puts us somewhere over 3,000 and something. So maybe do we put a cap on it at 5,000 in order to just get a hold of some of those um, expenses? I'm not sure. But it's certainly a question that that we're entertaining um, and one that we uh, enthusiastically look forward to, you know, some kind of change. We certainly can't continue at the pace that we have been. Um, this last year has certainly shown us that because we have had to slow down in, in terms of uh, acquisitions in some regard. Um, not a lot, but a little bit. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get through this difficult time, but we also have to think about the future. And I don't believe that we can continue to collect at the same rate forever. It just doesn't make any sense. And that's a practical consideration. But what about the experiential one? That is the audience's interests and expectations. Uh, Do you yeah. think audiences in Miami are as interested in seeing old favorites on the wall as they are in the novelties that you can provide? I think it's a combination, which is the thing that I love. I think that there are works in the collection that people um, respond to at given times. And it's really nice to see the way that people are passionate about works of art. We recently acquired by bequest an absolutely fantastic Frank Stella painting from 1969. And, you know, it's a, it's a protractor painting. Mm. It's colorful. It is gorgeous. And all different kinds of people just really respond to the work. And it's really exciting to see. So that just came into the collection, but of course it's 50 something years old. Uh, So it's hard to say what audiences always want, but we have to ask them what they want. And that's what I think is one of the keys to this last year has been about being honest about how community-centered you um, want to be. And we want to be community-centered, and so we want to know what our community wants. The cessation of tourism or the precipitous decline oh, yeah. that has probably contributed to that. What do you think tourists coming to Miami when they return, not if, but when they return, how does that affect your thinking about 
collecting, about exhibition focus, and, and experientially? Yeah. What, what do you think about the that's, difference between? That, that's what tours? I love. One of the things I love about working here, right? You know, mm-hmm. this museum opened in December of 2013. Why December? Well, we all know why, right? Our Basel. Mm-hmm. Everybody's coming to town. We're going to show off for our visitors. But we're here 365 days a year for first and foremost, our immediately surrounding community and finding the balance between what we want to see here locally and the balance between what our curators and artists are thinking about on an international scale. That's the fun part. That's that's the thing that keeps us looking and thinking and talking on a daily basis is that kind of conversation and that kind of search for just the perfect mix. Um, I know that one of the things I believe we do really well is we look through a Miami lens. So I believe that a lot of people do come here in order to see something that is unique, right? We have a gallery downstairs right now. There's a beautiful Solowit cube, Mm -hmm. minimalist sculpture, an open cube sitting in the middle of the floor, right? You could see it anywhere. You could see it in MoMA. You could see it in Japan. You could see it in Europe. And yet we've surrounded it with four incredible women who you're not going to see it in the same context anywhere else. Sarah Modiano from Colombia, Zilia Sanchez, originally from Cuba, Lolo Soldavia, Cuba, and also Carmen Herrera, Cuba. The way we do it is different. Aesthetically, we're pulling from a genre or a style or a moment of of art historical collective thought, right, around minimalism. Uh, that That is quite beautiful to see together. And then when you look at the stories behind the work, we're doing something that you just, you're not going to see somewhere else. And I think that's people, people expect that of us, right? We have the biggest collection of contemporary Cuban art, uh, I believe there is, as far as museums go. And why wouldn't we? Our proximity to that country and our proximity to its people who are here in this country and and our history um, with that country are, are so palpable that we, we have to be able to do that. We must be able to present that. And I feel likewise about the Caribbean. We started a Caribbean Cultural Institute last year, and we should. It's a, it's a way of understanding and thinking about people through art, and that's what we're here to do. And Franklin, you've thought about people through art in a different way because you were a curator for so long. You've been a museum director since 2015. Mm-hmm. But what kinds of compromises do you think you've had to make after a long and successful career as a leading curator? And what kind of satisfactions have you found that you didn't have as a curator? Oh, um, thanks, Max. I, I mean, I, I love the, the ability now to work with our curators Sometimes you want to go, you know, you just want to go down the, the rabbit hole. And, and I can't do that in quite the same way now in this position as I could have um, before. So maybe I lament that every now and then. But overall, I love the, the dual kind of nature of this position in which we are always talking about art, but we're also talking about the business of art as well. 
And I find that that's so invigorating. From your time in Los Angeles, where you made such a mark, there's a stereotype of LA, and frankly, as well as a stereotype of Miami, as offering mm -hmm. imperfect soil to grow widely embraced cultural offerings because of the attractions of nature that you mentioned. Yeah. Is it more of a struggle to capture hearts and minds than you'd like? Or are those myths about both cities? I'll speak from here first. Um, it's challenging. I mean, I'll be honest. I'm sitting in my office right now. It's an absolutely gorgeous day. There are at least 50 some odd boats just in my direct line of sight. You know, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of good stuff uh, that exists in nature and, and it's here in spades. So it can be challenging at times uh, to bring us, bring people in the way that you want to, but that's the, that's the challenge too. That's the hunt that we're in um, and happily to be in, to have the opportunity to try and make that happen. So I love that. In LA, I think it's new ideas. And in both cities, what you're dealing with is histories that are shorter than, say, the Midwest or, or, or the Northeast. And so we're working from a little bit of a different vantage point, which is also it has so many positives and so many silver linings. For instance, being in Los Angeles, I was always amazed that, you know, you walk into our abstract expressionist galleries uh, at LACMA and they never change, right? They can't change because there's nothing to replace those works with the de Kooning, the, the Smith. Um, they, we don't have other options there, but what that made us do was forced us to look probably more closely at women artists whose work was more readily available. It forced us to also think about the present and the future. And so not for nothing, film and video are probably held in greater esteem in, in our collections that have had shorter lives in their relationship to things like histories of painting, right? When we think about kids today, my, my daughter's 10 years old, I and mean, she grew up with the idea of, of a screen doing a lot of things. It's interactive. It's not a TV that you turn on and it just sits there. It, mm -hmm. It's got to do something. So our relationship to histories of looking is much closer to that than it is to, say, you know, European fresco painting traditions. Yeah, and running a modern and contemporary museum, some of the concerns of other directors who run the encyclopedic museums are different ones. But oh, yeah. you have a privileged position in some ways to be thinking about your daughter's interests, the interests of people in their 20s and 30s, as well as those for whom history of the past may be relevant in different ways. Absolutely. Franklin, let me ask you something else, which is just to close, and it's a silly question, but if you had a magic wand, what is the one thing you would change about the museum profession that you've been in for so long? Wow, Max. <laughs> I think, I guess it goes back to what we were talking about, about, you know, what are museums for, right? And if, the, if, if it's for creating a space of dialogue and a space that is of importance to its immediate surrounding community, then I would like to get there sooner. Yeah. And that that's kind of, you know, that's that's what I would, would change, I guess. 
to be a place for for everyone and to be meaningful in people's lives on a daily basis um, mm-hmm. knowing that art can be the catalyst for uh, empathy and a catalyst for understanding uh, that in a cliche way takes us to you know a better world yeah well we're all watching what you're doing at Pam and grateful for it and I want to thank you for making time today Franklin I really appreciate it Max, thank you so much. It's good to talk to you in this way. We've been speaking today with Franklin Sermons, director of the Perez Art Museum, Miami. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.